Hello and welcome to the Selection Show. I'm Ian Heath, the news editor at Citywide Selector, and in the studio with me today, I have Citywide AAA rated Emerging Markets Value Manager, Camel Dimmich. Uh, Camel manages the Pacific North of South Emerging Markets All Cap Equity Fund, which holds more than 70 investments across 30 different emerging markets. Camel, you're a value investor. Can you tell me, why did you decide to become a value investor? Well, there wasn't ever much doubt in my mind, really. Value investing is the only kind of investing that adds value uh, because really our job as fund managers is to outperform the broader market. And if you're overpaying for assets, you're over time going to underperform. So the flip side of that is you've got to find uh, companies and you've got to find ideas that are at a discount to the market. And that's how you're going to outperform in the long term. So even if you're buying growth stocks, there's nothing wrong with with growth stocks and, and of course, uh, we, we love growth, even though we're value investors, but you've got to be so aware of the valuation that you're not overpaying. Um, and anything other than that is really trading as opposed to investing. Okay, sure. Uh, I always associate emerging markets with growth. Um, so, so why did you in particular decide to become a value investor in emerging markets? Well, you're not wrong. Most people think of emerging markets as a way to capture growth, this, this growth of these economies that are still less developed than, than in the West and that therefore have higher growth potential. The challenge is that this is well understood and well known and most investors in emerging markets are chasing growth stocks. And we, we even did a little exercise. We looked at the largest five value managers in emerging markets and the largest five growth managers in emerging markets. And the growth managers have five times, sorry, three times as many assets as much assets as the value managers. And also there's a whole lot more growth managers around than, than value managers. So the net effect of that is that it's a supply and demand issue. There is a lot more money chasing this limited supply of growth stocks in our markets. And so they become expensive and they're not really where you want to be. Mm. You want to be benefiting from those stocks that are overlooked because everyone's looking for that growth. And that's where you're gonna add value over time. Okay, so how do you recognize these sorts of opportunities and make the most of them? Well, we focus primarily on cash flows on companies that have established business models where we are acquiring a series of future cash flows effectively and appropriately valuing them with, with uh, keeping in mind the riskiness of those cash flows, the riskiness of the forecasts that we are making. And if we're able to acquire them at a discount to a very conservative estimate of fair value, then we think over time we're going to make money. Okay, and how do you avoid falling into the classic value trap? Yeah, value traps is a good one because, of course, that is the biggest mistake a value investor can make. And most people think of value traps as stocks that are cheap and are going to remain cheap because they're not very interesting. Mm -hmm. The thing is, there are different ways of making money as a value investor. The obvious one mm. is you buy something that is cheap, that is on a low multiple, and then people realize it's cheap and the multiple re-rates. Yeah. And, and of course, that's kind of the nicest, the most elegant way of making money. You're in ahead of the rest of the market, and then the rest of the market catches up and the stock goes up. But actually, you can also make money with value traps. If you buy a stock that is very inexpensive and is paying a very high level of dividend, for example, mm. which it can because it's on the low multiple of earnings, then you are earning every year, you are earning this income, very high quality income because it's repetitive. It comes in every year. It's not as volatile as market returns. 
and you can outperform the market by simply clipping those coupons from the stock. And then the other thing to consider is if you own a stock, let's say you own a stock on five times earnings that's growing 10% a year. If the earnings are growing 10% a year and the stock stays on five times earnings, you're going to make 10% a year because even though the stock is not re-rating, mm. all that growth translates directly into the share price. The flip side is if you're paying 50 times earnings for a stock that might be growing a lot faster, your share price will probably underperform the earnings growth because that multiple is going to decline over time because basically it's the, this earnings growth has already been priced into the stock. So you're, mm -hmm. you're actually better off owning the cheap stock with lower earnings growth than the high growth expensive stock. Okay, sure. It's, there's a, a lot of inefficiencies and um, perhaps um, idiosyncrasies within emerging markets. Is that one of the key attractions for you as value investors? Is, is this somewhere, something which helps you establish, you know, kind of real bargains in the market? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So emerging markets, it, and this has been, I think, well established. We, we all know it's incredibly hard for a fund manager in the US to beat the S&P 500. It's because it's a it's a much more efficient market. It's also a market uh, that's uh, dominated by a small number of mega caps. It's a very kind of narrow universe. We in emerging markets operate, as you mentioned, in, in 30 plus countries. Yeah. And the investor mix in these countries is very, very diverse. And you have different people making rational investment decisions that can still lead to completely opposite conclusions. So you will have international investors that are looking at this market and comparing, uh, let's say, a stock in Thailand to a stock in Brazil. Mm. And they might come to a very different conclusion from a domestic Thai institutional investor pension fund that has to be invested in Thailand for regulatory reasons and is comparing that stock to the yield they can get on domestic bonds. And then you've got the retail investor in Thailand who might be excited yeah. by the company because it's got an exciting product that he's familiar with. And so you've got, you've got this range of very different investors. Um, and, then, and then, of course, you have regional investors. You have the guys who are mm. just looking at Asia and comparing the Thai stock to Chinese stock or Taiwanese stock. And so as we get an ebb and flow of fund flows into in and out of these investors' investment pools, you end up with big inefficiencies. Stocks will move driven by fund flow, not by necessarily fundamentals. And that gives us an opportunity to, to spot this. And as global investors, we, we have a really wide universe we're looking at. And we can move in and out of markets, in and out of sectors, and spot opportunities where perhaps the locals haven't picked up on it. Okay, as you mentioned before, you're active in more than 30 countries. Um, when it comes to emerging markets, I find, for example, China is just enough to keep <laughs> to keep you busy, to keep you occupied, to keep on top of. How do you keep on top on, mm. of such a wide array of markets and just so much different activity? What other Pacific North or South do that? Yeah, this is always a challenge. You know, to give you a rough estimate, we think there's probably over 5,000 stocks that we could potentially be looking at within our universe that are liquid enough for us to invest that we could define as emerging markets. And of course, we're not looking at those 5,000 stocks very closely or even at all. And our philosophy really is that we're okay to not be aware and to miss out on certain opportunities that there'll be certain stocks that will do fantastically well that we haven't heard of uh, and we simply haven't had the, the bandwidth to cover. But 
the job of a good investor is to ensure that the stocks that he does own, he or she, uh, does own uh, are good quality stocks that individually, from a bottom-up perspective, have the potential to do better than the market to offer attractive risk-adjusted returns. And so all you really need is to be able to identify those stocks when you come across them and build a nice portfolio that's diversified um, and that contains a lot of upside inherently. So as a value investor, clearly, these are stocks that are trading at discounts to fair value. So we use a lot of tools. We, we yeah. look a lot at the cost of capital. We develop themes to help us, um, to help direct where we spend our time and effort. But basically, the idea is what's important is what's in the portfolio, not so much the stuff you might have not noticed uh, in some deep, dark corner of the market. Okay, so anything in particular that triggers you to look for a company? I mean, I understand you have a top-down and a bottom-up approach. It's quite clear you do quite a lot of research on the companies you look at. Is there anything in, in particular that you know catches your eye when you look for an EM company? Yeah, generally, you know, we, we are, as I said right at the beginning, we're value investors. We think all investors should be value investors. But actually what we're doing, what we're, when we're looking at companies, we're looking for good quality companies. So there is... I'm not sure this is a thing, but we are quality value investors. We're, we're looking for good quality companies that are trading below where they should be. And a good quality company, well, to us, that's a business that has a proven business model that is generating cash flows and has a consistent track record of generating cash flows where we think there is a degree of predictability. Forecasting the future is is clearly always uncertain and we accept that and that's why we apply a, a certain discount rate to mm. any future forecasts we make which depends on how risky we think those forecasts are but ultimately we're looking for businesses where we think there's a high degree of probability that they will achieve at least this minimum conservative expectation of future cash flow and those are businesses typically that have some sort of barriers to entry that protect them so either they have a very mm. significant market share um, they might have technological advantages. It could be patents, but more often than not, they're simply very, very good at what they do and nobody can really catch up with that. Um, they might have brand. Brands are obviously a very powerful barrier to entry or network effects. So we look for all these things and they're not necessarily big household names. A lot of times these are smaller companies. Uh, Taiwan is a market that's full of really interesting smaller companies that are dominant in a mm. very particular sub-segment of the technology sector, for example, uh, like making making the little uh, plugs where computer processors slot in. It's a, it's a market that's dominated by two or three companies, and they're very, very good at it, and nobody can really come in. So that gives you a, a degree of certainty that that company is going to be around for a while, and it doesn't really face much competition. Okay, uh, just continue. You mentioned Taiwan. There. I had a look at your your fact sheet, and you've got a very heavy weighting to um, Greater China, if you like to use that that term, um, which we've heard a lot about recently. I don't want to dwell on China too too much. We can't get away from the subject in emerging markets. Um, how do you see the situation at the moment? Do you actually perhaps see this even as a value opportunity? There's some of this um, noise we're hearing about China. We've heard people saying it's uninvestable or getting towards uninvestable. Clearly, you don't think that. What's your view? We love it when people say something's uninvestable because almost always they're wrong. Uh, it, we, we approach everything 
with the philosophy that th there are risks. There are risks with every investment, and these risks can be higher. And China certainly has a number of risks. I wouldn't say the political ones are kind of top of the list at the moment. It's more economic risks in terms of the structure of the economy having to evolve in terms of China no longer being able to rely on mm. building bridges to nowhere to drive economic growth. But, but there's a lot of headwinds, and we don't deny that. But if valuations are cheap enough to reflect those risks, then probably there's a value opportunity. So the, the big picture is we, we think the Chinese market and certainly portions of the Chinese market, not all of it, but portions of the Chinese market, like some of the internet stocks that people used to love to own, these were, these were your classic sort of growth stocks that all these big growth funds mm. were heavily invested in. Yeah. Um, and, and so these have all derated. They've become incredible value stocks and nobody, nobody wants them. And they're doing all the right things and they're restructuring and they're spinning off uh, bits of the business. And, and in any other market, they would be going through the roof. But okay. because it's China, they remain cheap. So arguably, they're value traps in the short term. But in the long term, we can see very valuable businesses. We want to be in there. So, so we, we see these opportunities. We're still, you know, we're, we're cautious on China overall. We're actually underweight yeah. China uh, in our portfolio. As you said. Well, we, I should we, mention when I say greater China, that includes Taiwan. You're about 22% yes. Taiwan, 22% China. Yeah. Absolutely right. So, yeah. so where, we, where we have a bigger weighting is Taiwan. Uh, now, okay, the, we all know what the big geopolitical risk today is. China clearly desires to reintegrate Taiwan. Taiwan increasingly isn't interested in being reintegrated into China, and that is setting up a potential military conflict somewhere down the line. We don't think this is imminent, but we do think, if you ask me sort of within the next 10 years, you know, what is the likelihood? I, 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 I hate to, to give a number, but I'm pretty sure that likelihood is a lot higher than say 10 or 20%. There's a real risk uh -huh. of something happening there. And, and that does partly explain why Taiwanese stocks are relatively cheap, considering the quality of these businesses, because people are worried about this. But it's interesting because we look at the bond market as well. It tells us a lot about what is being priced in. And actually, Taiwanese bonds are among the most expensive in the world. So the yield on Taiwanese bonds is only about 1%. You've got an incredibly low cost of capital in Taiwan. Oh, Bond right, investors okay. are not worried at all. Okay. And so you've got this discrepancy. And that allows us to take advantage of it, for example, by hedging the currency and earning a positive return on that. So you've, okay. got, a, you've got a real kind of cost of capital difference there, which benefits our Taiwanese holdings and provides a bit of a hedge against extreme events, uh, such as a potential invasion by China. Okay, that's very interesting. Okay, let's move on from China and talk about um, maybe some of your other uh, favorite hunting grounds. Um, there seem to be some which leap out from your fact sheet. Korea, I think we've dis I've discussed before with you. Uh, yeah. Brazil, you seem quite keen on. So could you tell me yeah, what have been some of your favorite hunting grounds over the years and um, you know, what, what ones have you perhaps enjoyed in particular? Yeah, so the great thing to come back to, to what you said, we cover 30-odd countries and... At different times over the past uh, decade and a bit, but we've been we've been running this strategy, we've had different favorites. Uh, so so every now and then you get an opportunity where a market is out of favor or there's mm -hmm. something changing structurally, and, and you get a lot of great value opportunities. And so, you know, today 
probably the biggest value markets. And, and to be fair, over time, the ones where I think we've been most active are probably Korea and Taiwan. Taiwan have spoken about Korea. There is a long-standing story of improving corporate governance. It's a classic value trap market historically mm. because companies have been incredibly poor uh, guardians of the cash flows they generate. They've been misallocating it and had very poor returns on equity, even though you have fantastic companies in Korea. Mm, of course. Um, but this is changing slowly, slowly, slowly. And you've still got a major discount uh, where these companies are trading versus their, their kind of fair value. So that's definitely a, a big market for us. But you know, we, we like the Middle East, for example. We've had, uh, we've had uh, a great time back in 2013, 2014. We were heavily in Saudi Arabia, where there was a great opportunity to own consumer stocks with fantastic demographics uh, at very inexpensive valuations. That's no longer the case, unfortunately. But we've recently been much more active in the UAE, where, again, you've got very positive dynamics uh, in terms of population growth through immigration, so, so that's a you know that's an interesting market that people don't necessarily think of in the first well, instance. Well, so you've got a real estate company there, Emar Properties, quite. A we do, company. yes, yeah. we we do, we do, and uh, and you know the the UAE story is very particular. The government has set a target to pretty much double the population. So if you if you think of it that mm. way, no country has as good demographic growth as Dubai, and the quality of that growth is also incredible because this isn't children being born who who will enter the workforce in 20 20 something years time these are people arriving from yeah. abroad with skills with relatively highly paid jobs who have income to spend and you know you in dubai let's face it you, you spend your money it's low taxes so the, there's a there's a really interesting dynamic there it's a really interesting market and it's fairly unique in 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 our universe or in fact anywhere in the world uh, this kind of immigration-driven growth. So, you know, there's there's different opportunities at different times. Brazil, you mentioned, Brazil's a volatile market. It's mm. a market you have to be very careful with. Uh, but uh, there are times when you do want to be in Brazil. Over the last year or so, Brazil's been really interesting because the market has derated. Uh, the central bank has been far more aggressive than other banks yeah. raising interest rates. We've We've almost certainly peaked and we will be seeing declining rates, which will have a huge impact on the Brazilian economy, on the Brazilian consumer, on companies' balance sheets, yeah. and mo most importantly to us, on the valuations we will be prepared to pay for these companies because you no longer have this alternative of parking your money and getting 12 or 14% on, on domestic bonds or in current accounts. Suddenly that equity market, which is now very, very cheap and deservedly so, Will, will look a lot more attractive. Well, it's interesting. Whenever I speak to emerging uh, market debt managers, they always kind of mention that the, you know, the emerging markets are much more used to combating inflation. They're well ahead of their rate, rate hike cycle. They could um, go into easing quite soon. I mean, is, is this something that's you know, kind of you kind of see out, outside of Brazil as well, but perhaps in LATAM the most? Yeah, so Brazil is your poster child for a super aggressive central bank. And yeah. Brazil has learned its lesson uh, back in the 90s and the 80s and 90s, Brazil had hyperinflation. It was a massive problem. It was finally dealt with uh, by by a series of measures and devaluations and changing the currency three times. And mm. <laughs> they've learned their lesson. So, so yes, it is a market that was, or, or it's a central bank that has been very aggressive in fighting inflation and and now has scope to to start cutting rates. So Brazilian inflation is is a below four percent. 
Mm. It's well below what it is in the UK. Uh, and and it's actually one of the relatively lower inflation rates out there. So so that's that's a good example. But the interesting thing, again, coming back to this idea, we have 30 markets we're looking at. They're all very different. They're all at different mm. points in the cycle. China is cutting rates because China is effectively in a recession mm. or for Chinese standards anyway, and is actually potentially entering a deflationary phase. So Chinese inflation is actually running at around zero. So, so you've got a completely different situation. Now you've got declining cost of capital, declining interest rates, which of course in, in a normal environment should prove supportive for, for equities because you, you can't get returns anywhere else. So, so it's a it's a wide range of markets, and we can really pick and mix and diversify, which is which is hugely valuable. Okay, um, just one last topic I want to pick up on, and um, it's the corporate governance thing that you mentioned in in, in Korea. Yeah. We've kind of been hearing a similar story in Japan recently. I know Japan is not an emerging market, of course, but um, is is this a theme which could play out elsewhere? Do you think? So. Yes, so Japan. I'm watching the Japan story as well from a distance. I'm not a Japan expert, yeah. but I've always said you know Japan marches to its own drumbeat mm. and has has internal dynamics that that will drive that market. And the same to some extent is true of Korea. These these are markets that are not just culturally somewhat similar, but but also in terms of economic development. So so yes, Korea that corporate governance story is very real. We have seen similar stories play out. The crazy thing is, <laughs> prior to the invasion, Russia was seeing a significant improvement in corporate governance, being traditionally a market with very poor corporate governance. Mm. So even the state companies were being pushed into starting to pay out dividends. Uh, some of these companies that we previously would have never touched, those were genuinely value traps because those were companies that where although they were potentially generating a lot of profit, you were never going to see any of that profit as a shareholder. And, and that was starting to change. Now, clearly, we, we, we very aggressively reduced our positions ahead of the invasion because we felt there was a real risk of something happening. And, and so it's not a market we can look at anymore. And, and it's a, well, it's a pity in, in, in more ways than one, of course. But, yeah. but to us as fund managers, we lost the market where there was an interesting underlying positive dynamic but I think you can apply that a little bit to to a broader to the broader universe. In Brazil, there's corporate governance issues, and and there is pressure to address them. And actually, probably the big one is China, where again, we've got a lot of state companies that historically have been hoarding cash mm. or using the money to make unproductive investments. There is a theme developing in China. And it's slightly murky. It's very sort of unspecific, but people are talking about SOE reform, state-owned company, state-owned enterprises, starting to be better guardians of the cash that they've built up on the balance sheet and the profits they're generating. And I think that can certainly be supportive. These are companies that trade on extremely low multiples. They're very, very cheap. Uh, we're, we're not super excited about it, but there are some real real value opportunities there. And over time, that could become a bit more of a theme. And certainly in the private sector, as I said, Chinese internet companies are ticking all the boxes from a corporate governance perspective. They're using their cash flow to buy yeah. back shares. They're focusing on profitability, not trying to get crazy market share. They're breaking up Alibaba, of course. The big story is mm. Alibaba is breaking itself up. And they're not doing what most companies do, which is listing a subsidiary, 
and the, the net result of that is, okay, you've got this subsidiary that is that now has a separate listing, but then the parent company becomes a holding company and starts trading at a discount. You see this in Korea a lot. No, so what they're actually doing is giving that company to their shareholders. So you, you realize the full value, it becomes a completely standalone separate company. You have two companies and they're each valued on their own merits. And very few companies do that because to do that, management has to basically make the decision, I'm going to be managing a smaller company. Nobody likes doing that. That's great corporate governance though, because it's it's creating value for shareholders as opposed to for management. And so, you know, I think corporate governance is hugely important if you're making investment decisions, especially in emerging markets. And And I do think the general direction is a positive one over time. Okay, sure. Okay, Kamal Dimich, thanks very much for joining me. Pleasure.